welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, here for episode 25. Hello, Glenn. And hello to you, Christina, and greetings and welcome to everyone to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Woolman. I'll be your guide along with Christina as we travel today through the healthcare galaxy uh, each week, uh, looking and exploring ways towards optimal health. How are you doing today, Christina? Fantastic. Yeah. I think I'm pretty optimal. How about you? <laughs> I am optimal. I'm loving optimality. <laughs> Optimology. Hey, that would be a new good study. That study would of, be. Study of optimum. <laughs> so, what's happening what's new in uh, the Trinity? In the Trinity? Well, you know, the Trinity is flowing. We have uh, some very interesting guests that should be coming up soon. We just need to make sure we have confirmations because so many of these people travel a little bit unlike um, the wonderful doctors that we have uh, on our show with you, you know, who are based in certain hospitals and everything. A lot of my peeps tend to travel because they're teaching all over the world or um, having some, you know, just the time. It's August. They're all preparing for yoga month, which mm. is coming in September. Oh. Yes. And so all the festivals and things like that are, are ramping up. So it should be quite an interesting month coming up with all the different specials coming up. Yeah, that's true. Doctors never leave. They stay in their cubicles and work and work and work and heal people. No, they don't... get to see wacky people like us. They don't <laughs> get stuck in a cubicle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have to heal the wacky people. There you go. That's I why like we're this. optimal, right? <laughs> that's true. And actually, it's good because many times I... I remember going to the emergency department for a shift and I would be feeling a little bit anxious or concerned about things in my life, you know, a water bill due or a car has to be fixed or something is going on in my house that needs to be changed. And then I get to work and I see so many of the things that people have that uh, uh, put my life in a perspective and I go, oh my gosh, I have such a great life. <laughs> I agree. So, you know, as part of the uh, program, one of the things is about educating people about medicine and showing the heart and soul of the doctors and uh, also getting good information out there for people to uh, figure out their own health care plans. And I wanted to just put things in a little perspective today of the way things work and by way of introducing our special guest, Dr. Dan Fox. He's a radiologist. So the way the way things happen, most people know this, but I just want to kind of bring it into its own process. Most of the time, somebody has a problem, mm -hmm. uh, a cough, chest pain, something going on in their abdomen or a lump here or something there, and they go to see their doctor. And then their doctor uh, does a history and does an examination and starts thinking of what we call a differential diagnosis. What are the things that this could be? And as they think of their differential diagnosis, then they start thinking about how can we make this more specific and make the exact diagnosis. And one of the ways to do that is through certain types of blood tests. Uh, you know, if you somebody has an infection, we can get a culture. If somebody has urinary complaints, uh, 
as we'll see with Dr. David Humes next week when we speak with him. You can get a urinalysis and see if there's an infection. But many times there is also the other part that we work on, and that's imaging studies. You've all heard chest X-rays, plain film X-rays. There's ultrasounds and MRIs now people are talking about. So that's when we send our patient to the radiologist to get specific films. And it's the radiologist then sometimes that actually makes the diagnosis for all of us and mm. for the patient. And many times the physician actually will, instead of just, I mean, most of the time we know what films we want, but sometimes there's something really specific we're looking for. So we consult with the radiologist, uh, unlike with a patient who rarely ever gets to speak to a radiologist. Uh, we as the doctor may say, you know, this is what we're thinking about. This is what my patient has. What studies do you suggest we get? And sometimes the radiologist will uh, suggest a few different studies, and we work with the radiologist to try and figure it out. So I realized that uh, most people never get to talk to a radiologist, and I thought it would be quite interesting and fun and educational to uh, speak with the radiologist. So I had to pick the best one I know. And uh, that is Dr. Daniel Fox. And I would like to introduce you, Christina, to Dr. Fox, our special guest today. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Glenn. Hello, Dan. And I would like you to meet Christina. Say hello. Christina, thank you very much for having me on your show. Oh, we're honored to have you on the show. It is great to be able to see a radiologist. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. A tie for you you guys. Please keep in mind, Dan, that you're probably the only radiologist that's ever been interviewed. So you represent all of radiology for the entire history of ever and for all radiologists around the world. So no pressure here. (laughs) And I know you can handle that. Uh, So, Dan, as the medical guide, what I usually like to do for our viewing audience is to give them an idea of the path we're going to take today. And the first part of the path will be about learning a little bit about you and your interests and uh, why you uh, went on the journey that you went on and what's brought you here today. Then I want to get into a little more specifics of talking a little bit about radiation and what it's about. We all hear about radiation, but we don't all know about it and maybe some simple explanations of things we need to be concerned about. We'll talk about radiation exposure Uh, from different sources. Mm -hmm. And then we'll also try and touch on some of the different imaging studies that uh, we in medicine use and you as as the specialist in the field uh, are an expert. And we may talk about some risks and benefits of some of these imaging studies. And then at the end, we will uh, talk about maybe some new technology or some new thoughts that you might have on how to uh, make yourself healthier. How's that sound, all right? Sounds good. Excellent. So let's, uh, let's start with um, your uh, original history. When did you decide to become a healer and what influenced you and how did you go through the process and what led you to uh, the specialty that you're in today? Well, that's a lot, but uh, I think I, I had an inkling of, of what I needed to do, man, I was 10. And that was on the Pacific Coast Highway when we were witness to a to a, uh, a semi-tractor and a motorcycle. Mm. So it was, 
it was a very um, very tough scene, and this not very many people knew what to do. This was in the early 70s. I was probably nine, ten years old, and there was a lot of argument over whether they should touch him or they should roll him over or they should move him. And in the course of about 10, 15 minutes with nobody doing anything, um, he passed on. And so I saw that. uh, And I told myself that I was never going to be in that circumstance that I didn't know what to do, at least. Maybe I, you know, God was calling him. Uh, I don't know, but um, I felt as though nobody there knew what to do. And uh, I felt a bit helpless in that circumstance. So I didn't really revisit that, and I didn't really think about that again until many, many years later, uh, moving on with, you know, the careers or going to school, doing all the things that you're supposed to do. I found uh, gravitation towards all the biologic sciences were just fascinating to me, and uh, I did spend quite a bit of time and energy, um, not just through my school, but that was sort of my interest. I would read some of the science I couldn't understand them, but I would read the science journals and had some friends that were working in the fields, and it was interesting to hear that. So I did work my way uh, through college into a molecular biology position at uh, Salk Institute and then again at Scripps. So that's really where my college took me. That was my uh, that was the intent of my training was to become a molecular biologist. Uh, I love the biology there, however. I was looking at the trees. I wasn't looking at the forest, and I really mm-hmm. did want to see the whole forest. The uh, physiology for me is really the the most interesting science there is, um, as in regards to medicine, just because it's it's how it works. It's how the engine how the engine purrs, and um, so mm. in order to do that, in order to be able to learn a little bit more about physiology, uh, I decided to take a step out of the lab. And that's when I went into, uh, I decided to choose uh, medicine. And it was, a, it was, a, it did also help me realize what it was that I needed to, when I was nine, 10 years old, help me realize those tools so that I could do something for somebody when they're in trouble. So on many levels, it was satisfying me intellectually. It was satisfying my, uh, my inner um, uncomfortable, uh, that hole that I needed to fill, that I needed to be able to know how to do something about a circumstance like that. And uh, of course, Glenn, as you know, through medicine, there's all kinds of choices presented to you while you're, while you're working your way through that. Mm-hmm. And so I did, uh, I did spend time uh, as a, doing a surgery as a surgical intern, um, spent time in medicine as a primary doctor. And spent a lot of years as an occupational medicine uh, physician while I was working through my residency. Um, but some of those tools, some of those, some of the sophisticated tools that I used in the lab, I found very intriguing. I was fascinated with, uh, with the, what I would do a Southern blot or a Western blot. And I had to develop those films. They, they use radioactive materials and I had to label poisons with radioactive material. And it's this invisible force that was so powerful, gave me so much information, but it wasn't easy. Uh, that technical aspect of radiology really, uh, sparked an interest for me. Um, and it allowed me an opportunity to know the whole body. You have to know urology, Obstetrics, mm-hmm. uh, 
pulmonology, cardiology. Yeah, I'm, I'm a master of, uh, well, a, uh, a jack of all trade, but a, a master of none, we like to say, because we do know or try to know what it is that's important for our physicians. So uh, it, it was a pretty good choice for me to be the doctor's doctor. Mm. And that's that's kind of where you end up. That's We don't see the other, we don't see our patients typically, but we do see our doctors. And so that's that's kind of the role that, that fit best for me. That's a great story. And thank you for sharing that. It's very powerful, especially that beginning part of not uh, wanting to ever be in a place where you don't know how to help someone. Mm. I really like that. Yeah, that was really interesting. Can you describe for us, just in a few sentences maybe, or briefly, what what the daily day of a radiologist is? Uh, well, um, well, okay, so it depends on the day, and it depends on where you are. Uh, how course. about your day off? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the day off? In the ocean, and if it's and if it's not a sunny day, on the uh, on the mountain in the snow, yeah, well, all kinds of all forms of water. I like going down it uh, when it's frozen and when it's liquid. The faster <laughs> I can move on it, the better. So that's, <laughs> that's we spend so much time inside in the dark. Of course, that's how you're going to see imaging images better. That when the opportunity to get outside comes, boy, I'm out there as, uh, as often as I can. I eat breakfast, dinner. And lunch outside on my days off. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, a, so a daily radiology day. How about that? Uh, daily a day in the radiology. Well, as a as a um, say in a hospital setting, I usually run through all the procedures that I'm going to need to do ahead of time and organize those. Um, work through the emergency room list. All the scans that were done overnight. We have physicians that cover overnight, and sometimes they get a little sleepy eyed. So. We give them a better, fresh look in the morning, make sure all those scans were read appropriately and that patients were uh, have been all tucked away and tended to. And then uh, we move through the rest of the, the day, the scheduled procedures. And if there are emergent procedures, we, we work them in. Uh, primarily, we're helping the emergency room physicians get diagnoses and, and move their uh, patients through. But also, we tend to the inpatients. The so, ones in the hospital, you mean? Yes, the hospitalized patients. We, they're typically, if they have an endotracheal tube, if they have breathing tube in, then we're going to want to make sure that that tube is in a good spot every, you know, each morning we'll get a new X-ray. If there's been something new, a new line placed or something, we want to make sure it's in a safe spot. So it's our job to relay that information to the clinicians. Um, what's going on on the inside that you can't see on the outside? Well, and I am. I must say that. Working in the emergency department, the team of radiologists that work with us day and night, uh, you know, sometimes p people don't always come in at noon. Some of them come in at two o'clock in the morning and our radiologists are always there to help us to make certain decisions. So it's been great. But in speaking about that also, I will say that when we talk about uh, doctors in medicine, we always uh, give an applause to our nurses in fact, we're going to be interviewing a nurse in a few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that as part of our magical medical tour. That should be a fun interview. Uh, but uh, also the techs are very important, the ones that are taking the yes. x-rays. You don't really take the x-rays or do the MRI. It's the techs that, that prepare those images for you. And it's really a blessing when 
you have a great tech that really knows what's going on, isn't mm -hmm. it? Oh, absolutely. And that that is part of our responsibility, of course, is to quality control, make sure that the techs are doing the right job, um, you know, pat on the back when needed, uh, when when appropriate, and uh, and a pat on the hand when when appropriate. So um, our, our, our techs, we're lucky here in Santa Barbara, uh, in this particular community here, because we have a school that um, that we get to see these as they're coming up through their training, we get to see how they do and, and we get to choose some of the best because mm -hmm. we have first pick and uh, we're very happy with uh, with who we have and, and how it's been running for since the decade that I've been working here. Um, it's a very sought after uh, position by many because it is uh, it's a satisfying job. There's a lot of hands on and you really do get to contribute to making diagnosis which is which is key to getting somebody healthy. Yeah, that's great. And in fact, there have been so many times that the techs throughout my career have been very helpful to me. And I mean, first of all, not not only do they know what they're doing, but they also have stood by your side reading x-rays and reading ultrasounds and other things. So they have a, a lot of knowledge that helps and, and to differentiate certain things sometimes and they they offer advice many times in the middle of the night the tech may be there but the radiologist may not be there because of technology now we can send images to a radiologist's home and they can look at them from the home which is great but the tech is still there and the tech sometimes is able to say you know maybe we should get this view if you're really looking for this and it's very helpful yes you know they are they are our eyes and fingers when we can't talk to the busy emergency room physician and we're talking to our technologist, they can tell us, oh, this patient can't stand up for that view. There's no way they can stand up. Or, you know, and there's just a little added, uh, it's that it, they really are my eyes for me out there. The, I got to trust in what the emergency room physician is telling me. But then again, I know that I don't always know the emergency room physician on the other end. Sometimes they're, you know, in Oxnard and I haven't worked with them. Um, so I do know the language and I can I can sort of sense what's going on with a patient from a technologist's um, just their their tone of their voice, whether it's something that we can do or not. You know, one of the interesting things about this show is that it gives me the opportunity to think a little bit more about all the different specialists that I'm interviewing and that Christina and I are speaking with and meeting. And it, it gives me an opportunity to look at the specialties from the point of view of what you do. And I suddenly realized today, or, or as I was preparing for this episode, that there are many times people, as I referred to earlier, uh, people come to their doctor and they have something, but the doctor may not know what it is yet because they can't see into the body like you can. And when you take the x-ray and you look at it, you may be the very first person that really knows what this person has. And it may be something you know, really good, like uh, twins. Uh, if someone is pregnant and happy about twins, but it also may be that you're the first one that sees uh, a deadly brain tumor in a five-year-old. And you know that before anyone else. What happens to you 
when you look at the MRI or the scan and you suddenly realize that you're about to tell the doctor who's going to have to tell the family uh, this, this very intense news, what happens to you? Hmm. Well, Glenn, that, that's actually, um, that's a daily, unfortunately, that's uh, daily or every other day that circumstance arises where there's something where it was unexpected and it may not be the happiest news. So, yes, I have to build an ego boundary and, and maintain that wall. And I think that's a little easier to do that when it's an image. It's a 2D image that's sitting in front of you rather than a patient. We do on occasion, however, have the patient in front of us. Mm-hmm. And that's and that circumstances in mammography. So very often, whether someone feels a lump or they didn't, they'll show up and they'll want to know what it is. And, and we'll have a very, we're pretty good guessers. And if we have a guess that this is going to be a cancer, well, we're not going to beat around the bush. We're going to let them know what it is that we're seeing and what we're working with, because that's just the way we got to go. We have to have this. I mean, the same thing with an emergency room physician, see something, you know, you get that tail that just looks ominous. <sighs> you have to, you have to ego boundary. You have to realize that this isn't something that's going to affect the next patient. It's not something that's. You have to keep it in. You sort of have to uh, move forward, uh, be as objective about it as you possibly can, and uh, curb that emotion. And uh, you can feel it later at night when you're sleeping, when you're talking to your family, or when you're loving on your healthy daughter, whatever it is. Um, you sublimate it into positive energy later. Um, but a lot of times right then and there, you just got to take a big gulp. Mm-hmm. Mm. What is the most unexpected thing you've ever seen? <laughs> well, ah, it's kind of embarrassing, but probably foreign bodies. We, we won't tell. <laughs> Christina and I will keep this a secret, we promise. Yeah. You're talking about no, foreign bodies and specific orifices? That's always a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> because we had that conversation had before, yeah. haven't we? We have, yeah. but it's been offline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That so was when we were with uh, Dr. Tufanki and I think talking about emergency departments. That oh, was yes. always unexpected for us too, seeing those x-rays coming up. Yeah. But, uh, okay, continue, Dan. <laughs> well, there's never, that, that history never comes, you know. That history never surfaces. It's just they got belly pain or, yeah. So there are some very interesting, um, there's some very interesting syndromes that, uh, that occasionally you can look through those, and uh, well, I you know every every week there's something that's interesting. But I I had a very interesting case of a neurofibromatosis too, where all the constellation of findings were were on the film. And at first glance, what what the heck is this? But after picking through each finding and putting them all together, well, there it is. It's the, that's just like the textbook. And so that's it's, that's very satisfying. It's when you can guess. You can guess right of what somebody is that nobody was expecting and that by taking what it is that I've learned and applying it to somebody who I may never meet, but it's going to positively influence their life, mm-hmm. that's, that's a very satisfying. Very Neurofibromatosis, satisfying. wasn't that the elephant uh, man? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, those are the neurofibromas that cause the deformation, the plexiform neurofibromas. But it's not always that obvious. There's some. There's sometimes there's subtle findings that that will give a clue. Um, you know, not a not a happy diagnosis, but at least the family knows now and for future generations. And watch out, and you know, other. It is a genetic uh, condition, and so watch for the future. Somebody else might have this kind of problem. It might just show up, you know, just mm. subtle. But um, that's a that's that's kind of a tough question for the every day is different uh, as far as how you feel about things when they come across your your desk. With yeah. uh, you know, I know our audience would not want me to let go too quickly of that uh, foreign body. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I okay. know that uh, there are right. people that are listening saying, oh, ask him, ask him. Okay. So, so do well, you feel comfortable telling us sure. at least one amazing okay. foreign body you've seen inside? Okay, it was pretty good. This was just about uh, – I also spent some time up in the Sierras working. So this was in the, the Mammoth Mountain Hospital where a uh, a incarcerated patient showed up with belly pain, and we took a picture, and you could see – uh, several small radiopaque form bodies th- scattered throughout the abdomen. And as you looked at them closer, one of them was a battleship. One of them was a wheelbarrow. One of them was a dog. Huh? These are they little swallowed. toys? It was a Monopoly game. They swallowed oh. the entire, all the pieces. They swallowed oh. all the only pieces. <laughs> so oh, this is a fantastic. source for it. I mean, sort of fantastic. <laughs> but it's a great <laughs> story. So this is not the person that I want to play a game with. Sounds like a sore sport. And um, those are game pieces that I don't think I ever want to use either. <laughs> so, All right, let's get let's get a little serious and let's get uh, educational here for a moment. Can you talk to us a little about radiation, what it is? We always hear about it. We worry about it. Uh, and we'll yeah. get more into different types. But can you just give us a brief course, Radiation 101? Well, of course, it's it's a big, huge subject. It's very uh, complicated, very technical, and and it's it's uh, part of the problem is the language associated with it. So, uh, what we have going on now is a is a story that's being exploited a little bit by the media, and it's become it's become a a real issue. Europe in the european society has had a little bit uh, a little bit ahead of us in regards to radiation safety and you know potential damaging effects and just the conversation hasn't been out here as much so um so what we get is a we get radiation in the background and we get it all uh, every day we're getting background radiation from terrestrial from our food from the sun the cosmic and so that averages out to a number, a millisievert is a number. That's sort of the, the value that we use. And you have to sort of get a good idea of what a millisievert is in order to understand radiation across other, other you know, what other, what other radiation-producing um, systems there are. So as walking around on, in the United States, we get about three millisieverts radiation exposure. That's just living, being where we are. If you go up to Mammoth, two miles high, you're going to get a little bit more radiation because you're up higher. There's less atmosphere to protect you from the cosmic radiation. So you end up with about a half a millisievert more. So three and a half millisieverts. Hmm. And radiation is, it's so, uh, it's it, because it's invisible, 
because it's so powerful, it has its, all the biologic effects that we know it could potentially harm you. But then again, it's that which can save your life by, by being able to produce an image that gets you a diagnosis. We use it to uh, generate electricity. We use it to date rocks, to sterilize food. It's a very useful tool. And the doses that we use in medicine are minuscule. However, uh, it's not without harm. And it has to be used very carefully and, and uh, judiciously. <clears throat> Excuse me. So <clears throat> the, the, I think that the, the big issue with it is that since, 19, since the mid-80s, our radiation dose, the average U.S. population, has been exposed to 3 millisieverts a year, right? That's our background radiation. Well, now it's 6 millisieverts. We've doubled our back our, our average dose to human uh, to the human population in the United States has doubled in in less than twenty years, and that's predominantly uh, attributed to the use of medical imaging. And in the seventies and the eighties, this fabulous machine came out, the CT scanner or the computed tomography, and that CT scanner has just been tremendous. Uh, the only way to look inside somebody's body before this was to do an exploratory laparotomy or a surgery and just open them wide open and take mm -hmm. a look around. So CT has really saved us from having to do that. We can look inside, and even when people had exploratory laparotomies, we couldn't see inside the liver. We would just see the outside surface of it. So this allows us a look not only inside the body, but inside the organs. So because of that, and because of the ability to do make diagnoses, we use it quite a bit. And unfortunately, in some circumstances, it gets substituted for physical examination. Mm -hmm. Many uh, so it's predicted, well, and it's actually documented that since the 1980s, the use of CT has doubled nearly every two years. So the number of scans has doubled. That's a lot of radiation being produced by our scanners. And it is considered that medical radiation exposure, that use in diagnosis, may ultimately account for anywhere between one and a half and two cancers, uh, two percent of the cancers in the world, at least in the United States, and 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 eventually extrapolated to the world as as the third world uh, starts using the scanners all, as well. So that's the concern: is that radiation. Uh, we produce the radiation through by high energy hitting an anode and producing the x-rays in a vacuum tube and it shoots through and we direct it through a person so that it uh, that which passes through produces an image on the film on the other side and so that's just that's the medical uh, radiation that we use for x-rays sometimes we use nuclear medicine that's an intrinsic material you inject it into an arm and it goes into the body and, and goes to the areas of concern and then emits radiation. So that's always on. Nuclear medicine materials, those are always on. They half-life, they decay over time, as opposed to an X-ray tube. Once you turn that electricity on, electric, the, the X-ray is being produced. But once you turn that off, the, uh, the X-ray is gone. There's no lingering radiation associated with an X-ray tube as opposed to, say, nuclear medicine. Mm. So a little bit different. I don't know if that's the answer to your question or uh, a long way around it. Mm. But that's, yes. Yeah, no, that, that is a good uh, answer, and uh, it's important. So how, 
how as people do we know we you know we go to the dentist and the dentist says oh it's time for your films again you know we need to get some dental films and then we have a uh, chest x-ray our yearly chest x-ray and then we go uh, on a plane flight and we're going through these new scanners is there a way that we would know on our own that we've had too much radiation how do we check that how does a normal person know when they're having mm. too much if they get uh dr uh, alan brown who you know talked to us uh a few sessions ago about the amount uh, he mentioned radiation in an airplane going on a transatlantic flight or a transcontinental flight so how do we know if we're overexposed or not what can we do as normal people to figure out when we should tell our dentist, I don't want films today. I've had too many this year. Yeah, now that's a really, really tough question that the doctors, especially those on the front line ordering the studies, needs to figure out here. Now, personally, how do you know if you've had too much radiation? You, you, there's really no way to tell. Mm -hmm. Um especially when it comes to the, the medical doses that we're using are so small and the background radiation and, and your transcontinental flight. These are all relatively low doses um, that we're talking about, not, not like the doses that we use for radiation therapy or those associated with, say, a nuclear disaster. Those are a totally different scale. The, there are... Uh, Okay, so now this has been brought up in regards to state, we now have a state mandate. They want us to now uh, put down on each report what it is, how much radiation was um, an estimation of the radiation that that patient received. So there's a way of keeping this up. And of course, you should, you know, if you have your own personal medical records, you can tally these up. And most modern machines do have those values on them. They're buried, but you can find those numbers. They're highly variable between individuals. Uh, you can have a, a dose to, uh, with a, just the same scan. You can have a dose that's 10 times higher in one individual as opposed to another just because of their body, their size, just because of their tissue composition, say they're a little more fatty than, than another person. Um, all of that is is just an estimate value. So it's got the attention of the legislators so that now we have these doses being uh, being published. It's out there on the report for everybody to know. Um, we can, you know, there are some some folks say, oh, once you've had five scans, you've had too many. Um, there, it, it's, it, it all has to do with the, with relative risk of what it is that you're having done. What is the problem that you need answered? Well, if you just had a bad trauma and you've already had five scans, well, you just had a bad trauma. You could have a laceration to your liver or to your spleen, and you may need to go to surgery right now or not be around tomorrow. So you better get that CT scanner. It's not something that you're going to want to add up those numbers. You better get that scan done because the risk is far under the benefit that you may receive from having that scan. Mm -hmm. um, so the relative, well, so a physician that's ordering a scan for trauma or to evaluate in the extent of a cancer, something you can feel, how far is it in there, uh, that, that's a very reasonable, you know, high benefit, uh, relatively low risk 
as opposed to uh, a, a young girl that shows up with a tummy ache and she's had that tummy ache, you know, repeatedly over the past three months now. And it's just a tummy ache, but it's enough to get her in the emergency room. Mm. Well, is that is that really an appropriate use of our scan there? Maybe not. Maybe you want to start with an ultrasound there. So, you know, trauma versus tummy ache, risk to benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, there are some formulas being generated now as far as cumulative dose. What what is safe? Well, I think our best data comes from uh, the Chernobyl experience, and that is that if you've had a hundred, you know, we're talking about millisieverts again. That that darn dose you have to sort of get in your mind three millisieverts background radiation. So if you have one hundred millisieverts exposure. That is supposed to increase your risk of developing a fatal malignancy by 1%. And that's a number that's pretty pretty well accepted across the international communities. And uh, the physicists and the radiologists, we all kind of uh, say that that number is not, probably not too far off. It, it's not going to be hugely different from that. Would you repeat that number again, please? That is 100 millisieverts. Increases okay. your risk of developing a fatal malignancy by one percent. Now you got to consider that you're that's a relative risk because your potential of developing a fatal malignancy without radiation is also much higher than that. So mm-hmm. a one percent increase is not you know a one percent increase. I have some numbers here that I will share with you in regards to uh, the relative risk, and um, I have to write them down because they're they're confusing for myself. Um, so. <laughs> Okay, so with uh, when we talk about, say, x-rays and, and the amount of dose that you get for each one of these, I'm going to run through these particular studies and what kind of radiation dose you're going to get now that we're all millisievert savvy. Great. <laughs> so one millisievert exposure is, say, if you've got a lumbar spine radiograph, one millisievert. One th- so that's four months background radiation. If you get an x-ray of your hand, that's 0.001 millisievert, tiny, tiny, tiny dose. An x-ray of the chest, 0.1 millisievert. Uh, so a chest CT, now we're getting into the big dose. This is the, where, the, where the real doses come. A chest CT, anywhere between 3 and 7 millisieverts. A CT abdomen and pelvis, anywhere between 8 and 15 millisieverts. So if you get a scan that's with and without contrast, now that's two scans, so you're getting anywhere between 16 and 30 millisieverts, right? So now we're getting up to the number 30 millisieverts. Now, Mm. if we got three of those kind of scans, now we're up at 100 millisieverts. So those doses are, you know, those you can see that when we're talking about chest x-rays, when we're talking about mammograms, those numbers are very, very low. The radiation safety issues that we really need to focus on are that of the CT scanners. Those are our very high doses. And people, individuals, are biologically sensitive to varying degrees throughout their life. Women are always more biologically sensitive, mainly because of the breast tissue. And children, of course, they're growing tissues. Those are much more susceptible to radiation and and they also have longer to live, so they have a more likelihood of developing a malignancy. So the magic number is really where we start to see the curve sort of asymptote away from uh, 
the higher incidences of malignancies is about 35. That's when our bodies sort of physiologically are not as uh, actively dividing. All of our cells are not turning over. Of course, we still have a lot of a lot of tissue turnover, but it's the growing cells. Those are the ones that are susceptible. The growing cells and the young child. So women and children. So the ones we need to really, really, really be careful of are our teenagers and our young adults, and particularly our women, because we're finding that the breast tissue is much more sensitive to radiation and radiation-induced malignancies than we had thought in the past. Mm. So when, when somebody, um, when we talk about how, what's the risk of, of developing a malignancy from, uh, from having, say, a, one scan, it's hard to say because you never know which scan is going to be the one. It's a really a cumulative, uh, it's a cumulative phenomenon. And, uh, okay, so the relative risk, when... When we talk about cancers in general, say we say 2% of the population could potentially end up with a cancer from their scans. We talk about the, a fatal cancer per 1,000 people. That's just the number that we put them in. So when we talk about the number of fatal cancers per abdomen, pelvis, CT per 1,000 people, so if we did one of those high-dose scans where we did a with and without, we're going to take the highest dose, abdomen, pelvis, with and without. And say with and without a, contrast is what you're talking about there. That's correct. Yeah. So it's two scans through the body, one whole scan and then another whole scan. So that's going to be at our higher dose. That's what we're going to say just for sake of argument that that's 30 millisieverts. We did a very high dose study on that patient. The chance of developing a cancer from that in 1,000 people is 1.5. That's just a guess. So 1.5 people out of 1,000 Will develop a cancer because of that? Youch, that's a high number. We really don't like that very much. But if you put that into perspective in regards to the number of people that all people that will die of a cancer or develop a cancer, that's 228 per 1,000 people. 228 people will die of cancer out of 1,000. That's a lot. And when you take that one of those 228 came from medical radiation-induced phenomenon, the number's not that big. It's still something to stand up and pay attention. But one versus one hundred uh, versus 228, just at a natural phenomenon you develop, well, it's a relative risk. You have to really take into consideration risks of other activities. And probably my, one of my favorite is driving, because driving is a pretty risky, risky endeavor, right? So Especially we have, here in L.A., yeah, well, the numbers probably are a bit different uh, and, and skewed towards the Midwest. The numbers that I have here as far as uh, extrapolation, probably higher for L.A. traffic. But uh, so, per okay, so if you have somebody that gets an X-ray of the chest, of the hand, of the uh, CT of the chest or the head, so the, 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 you take that same risk for somebody that's driving and you take how many miles they drive and the potential for getting in a fatal accident. So we compare these two. We put the relative risks next to one another. And I think this is a useful exercise because it helps explain what kind of risk are you putting yourself at when, you order, when your doctor orders you a CT of the chest? Well, what, mm -hmm. kind, of, you know, what kind of risk? And, and saying, well, it's me driving across country. And that's about, about what it is. So a 3,000-mile drive 
put you at about the same risk as developing a cancer that could kill you years down the line as you having a chest CT. Hmm. And say that one of those high-dose scans, one of those, say, uh, the CT abdomen pelvis with and without contrast, again, two, two scans through the, bell, through the belly and through the pelvis. So that's the same as driving 12,000 miles. So that's about the same as going back and forth cross-country. What's that? Maybe uh, three times? times. Yeah. So that's a pretty risky, right? That's pretty risky to be doing that, you know, making that drive two times back, not all in one sitting, of course, but over time, mm-hmm. the probability of something happening to you. So that's a very, uh, to me, that's a very useful way of explaining when somebody gets a chest x-ray, you're putting yourself at the same risk as say driving 40 miles from here to Ventura. Mm. We don't think about, we don't think twice about driving to Ventura when we got to go down to, you know, uh, Best Buy. <laughs> whatever it is right that's something we we got to do we have to get down there to get our headset or else we won't be on the the um we won't magical medical well tour our, <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> so you don't think twice you go do that the chest x-ray a lot of people will stop hey wait a second am i getting too much radiation well if you have a pneumonia or something else that might need to be treated mm-hmm. and that is going to make a difference for you you're probably better off getting that x-ray so the chest x-ray doses the mammograms the extremity x-rays, very low dose. I don't think we need to worry about long-term negativity related to those studies. Mm. The abdomen and pelvis CT, mm, well, you better be careful. Make sure that that's something that need be done. How do you monitor that? Oh, well, that's a tough one. Uh, we're doing what we can right now, um, you know, with the force of the law to at least record these and have them available. All of this stuff is available for any patient if they want to go back over their records and see what they have. Of course, that radiation log is there. How accurate it is? Well, mm-hmm. these are just estimates. Um, so uh, we are coming of age where we're going to be seeing a little bit more, a lot of bit more documentation than what we're seeing already. I have a question about um, the radiation. Our body absorbs it. Now, how... Over time, does it begin to dissipate the levels? So it's not something that's accumulated. What happens is the cell damage that accumulates. Mm. And so there's a couple of things, a couple of different things that radiation can do. Um, There's that, which is when we have like a high dose exposure, say a a bomb goes off, or you get a scan, a perfusion scan of the brain. That was where at Cedar sinai where the machine went wrong and they scanned too much, right? Remember these kids lost some some hair. One kid lost some hair, younger woman lost some hair. So that was a significant dose. We could see some effect from it. The, uh, The stochastic effects of radiation is very low dose. It's independent of the dose. And it takes over a lifetime to develop the problems because it's cell, it's DNA damage. Nice. And so the radiation goes through, it interacts with the water inside the cell. And when that, when that photon shoots through that water, it knocks the H2O, it will knock one of the H's off. And you end up with a free radical OH. And that in turn creates the peroxide cascade and in turn will injure the DNA. Well, our body's pretty smart. Our body knows how to repair the DNA, and sometimes it'll repair it perfectly. So no bit, no harm, no foul. It's been repaired perfectly. Sometimes it's not repaired very well at all, and the mm. cell dies. 
That's okay if the cell dies because that's not going to cause future problems for you. That's more of a deterministic effect, which mm -hmm. you can see what happens through a deterministic effect with the cell death. The one that we don't like, the problem that we don't like is when that DNA is damaged and your body repairs it, but not perfectly. Now you got yourself a cell that can grow uncontrollably. Wow. So how many of those cells are going to die? How many of them are going to be repaired perfectly? And how many of those are going to be repaired imperfectly? Those are the problem cells. It's the number of those cells in a, in a probability. Mm. So you have to be set up for it genetically. And it, it has to do with the cumulative dose over time. I see. So a deterministic effect, say something that uh, a radiation dose, somebody just got blasted. Some of the things that you'll see are uh, the things that were fam that are famous. We see people lose their hair. Well, that's a 3,000 millisieverts. Remember, wow. we were talking 1,000 millisieverts, 100 millisieverts when we we're talking about mm. cancer, three millisieverts, background radiation. You lose your hair at 3,000 millisieverts. Your skin reddens at 6,000 millisieverts. You become sterile. We're talking gonadal exposure at 25,000, you develop cataracts at 2,000. So 2,000 is probably the lowest dose, and that's the one that I have to worry about in my field because I get that kind of dose bouncing off a patient when I'm doing fluoro. We wear glass. We will. Those, so that's something that you can actually uh, accelerate. So those deterministic effects, those that you can see acutely, mm -hmm. are, are different than than the stochastic ones that are cumulative over time. And the low-dose medical radiation that we do for diagnostics, that's where we got to worry about. It's very rare for us to see a deterministic effect. If we do what's usually associated with radiation therapy, say somebody has a cancer and they need external beam radiation therapy, so that's when we'll see those kind of, uh, that, that kind of side effect. And, and I think that probably the the example, the extreme example of a deterministic effect would be acute radiation sickness, where, say, we're exposed to a very high dose, and we're talking one millisievert, or I'm sorry, one sievert. So that's a thousand millisieverts. So one sievert exposure is enough to get you acute radiation sickness. That's nausea, vomiting, and some diarrhea for a couple of days. And then, sadly, you feel well, you feel terrific, you feel even giddy mm -hmm. because you've survived it. And then over the course of the next few days, you start to deteriorate, more nausea, more diarrhea, perhaps seizures, mm. the brain starts to swell. And then ultimately, over the, over the course of either months to years, people sustain bone marrow, bone marrow failure and end up dying of infection. So acute radiation sickness, very cool. We will hope to, I hope to never see a case of radiation sickness like that. I've never seen one, and I, and I hope to never see one. Mm -hmm. But that, that's kind of the upper extreme. Now, what about the, um, you know, when, when all this happened in Japan and everything, we learned of, of certain, is it a, a, like an iodine or something that people could take to help sort of, I wouldn't say prevent, but what, what does that do? Okay, so, all right, so the radiation cloud for us is actually a pretty big deal. Because we're right across the ocean in three days, mm. the uh, and the jet stream flows towards us. So two to three days, that cloud is over us. So in the cloud, there's a few there's a few nasty materials. So one of them is I one thirty one iodine one thirty one radioactive iodine. Mm -hmm. That your body considers it just organic iodine, and it will absorb it and put it into the thyroid. 
just like it's organifying it, just that's what it needs mm. to do to make thyroxin or thyroid hormone. And when it's sitting inside there, it's irradiating the tissue locally, the beta radiation, and that creates a thyroid cancer. So that's the concern with I-131. Mm. What we can do is there's a solution called Lugol solution. It's a very, very, very high concentration of iodine. And if you flood your body with that iodine, your body has so many iodine molecules around there, it doesn't need to take one of those dirty ones to organify. It's only It'll only take in a couple. So the potassium iodide or Lugol solution that you would take for that would protect your thyroid, which is the biggest problem out in Chernobyl. That was the one that, uh, it wasn't in Chernobyl proper, but in the areas around Chernobyl. Mm. There's another material inside those radiation clouds, strontium-90. The body thinks it's calcium, so it incorporates it into the bone. Now, the difference between strontium and the difference uh, and, and iodine is that the iodine has a half-life of about nine days. Mm. So it goes away pretty quick, nine days, nine days, nine days. After five days, it's pretty much gone. After five half-lives, I'm sorry. So 45 days, it's pretty much gone. Mm. With the strontium, the half-life is 30 days. So now we're talking months. And what happens is those that, that calcium inside the bone is radiating that bone marrow that's very active. And this is a, this is a setup for leukemia. Mm. So strontium is the other dirty agent in there that we don't like, the one that we really don't like. And this is the one in the uh, nuclear, uh, what we see a lot in the nuclear-grade uh, the plutonium that we're using instead of uranium for some of our nuclear medicine, or for some of our nuclear plants, the cesium that comes out of there, cesium-137. Now, this is called a 300-year contaminant because the body, yeah, thinks yeah. It's, <laughs> the body thinks it's potassium, and it's got a 30-year half-life, 30 years. So when it's potassium, it gets incorporated into muscle, which gets into the food chain, and it gets accumulated. So the cesium is one that we really, that's the one that would be very hard for us to deal with if we had a big cesium problem. So when we talk about the experience at Japan, how, you know, how big of a deal was that? It was a pretty big deal, but it was nowhere near the big deal that we had at Chernobyl that mm -hmm. we hardly even talk about anymore. And just for example, in that Chernobyl experience, there were over 200,000 people, responders, that were exposed to 100 millisieverts, that 100 number that we don't like, they were exposed to 100 millisieverts or greater, 200,000 people. And 1,000 first responders were exposed to 20,000 millisieverts or 20 sieverts of, of radiation exposure. So 1,000 people, obviously every single one of those got acute radiation sickness and, and are no longer here with us. Of those 200,000, how many of them ended up with a cancer? Well, we're talking about, you know, something on the order of 2,000. So those are pretty big numbers. Mm -hmm. In the Japan experience, we had three guys that were exposed pretty high. Those are the guys that were carrying cables through the hot water, and they got beta burns on their legs, and they got a total exposure of about 170 millisieverts. Mm. 170, very, very low. Mm -hmm, so three mm -hmm. people, nobody died, 25 people hospitalized. Hugely different scenario than that of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Dan, I want to talk about, that was very interesting, by the way. I was just thinking about mm -hmm. that before I moved on to my next question. 
Uh, thank you for all of that. I think that gave a real perspective of things that are happening out there in the world and the way we need to look at it. There are a number of images that people can get that we hear about plain film x-rays, there are ultrasounds, there's CT scans, there's MRIs, there's nuclear scans. Could you just briefly tell us if there's anything we should know about any of those and the best way to potentially prepare for some kind of a study? If someone's coming in for a uh, a barium study of their colon. Are there things that people should do first to make the uh, study um, a better study? And second, is there anything that people can do that they can take, that they can think about or be aware of to protect themselves from those free radicals that you were talking about with the peroxidases, et cetera? Yes, well, this is this is interesting for me because this is sort of in my um, what I have part of my job is to help protect you guys from radiation. You know, the manufacturers are there to make machines that can produce images with very low dose. Then there are the physicists who make sure all those parameters are met, and then there's us who create the protocols, the physicians, and so we're trying to produce as many protocols that we can using the lowest dose where we can still get the answer. And we're doing very well with that. We've, we've halved our dose in the last four years here in our community here and across the country. So we're doing, we're doing a terrific job. And there are some fabulous physics out there, as well as mathematicians that are helping us uh, with, uh, with some new techniques for our computers to allow us to get information with smaller and smaller doses. So there's that in. We're keeping an eye on that. And in my research and looking to find new ways to lower the dose even further, because you get it down as low as you can, and they say, okay, get it lower. Oh, okay. So now you're digging at the bottom <laughs> of the barrel here. And so with time and with uh, technical advances, we're getting better and better, and, and we're doing a really good job with this. So <clears throat> in part of my research, I found that one of the things that folks can do is nutritional supplementation prior to a scan. We know that we're going to be uh, subject to a barrage of photons and, and, a, and a potential uh, you know, colossal number of free radicals through our body during that radiation exposure. So if we can get ourselves tanked up on our antioxidants, and there's a lot of different antioxidants, and many of them are in, are, are in foodstuffs that already have been advocated um, for all kinds of other, you know, for just for prostate health, for breast health or whatever. Um, these these uh, materials, one of them is a, a medicine that we're using uh, to treat. And this one's fascinating to me because it's a medicine that we've been using for many, many years to help people who have ingested too much Tylenol. Maybe if they wanted to leave this world, they eat a whole bottle of Tylenol. What happens in the liver is that there's all these free, it creates all these terrible free radicals that kill the liver. And it, it takes the course of a, over a few days to weeks for that to happen. Well, we have a small window of time where if we give them this, this medicine that's called NAC, N-acetylcysteine, it smells terrible, it smells like sulfur, but that's just part of the glutathione antioxidant cascade that is, uh, that's sort of beefed up by this uh, drug. If you take that, that medicine before an exposure, it's been proven, at least in the laboratory, to be radioprotective for the liver. Some of the other agents, of course, uh, the green teas, 
has a, have a lot of beneficial uh, antioxidant qualities. Of course, you you guys are very familiar with those for, for many other. Uh, I'm trying to remember some of the names of these guys because they are as complicated as, say, a bacteria name. And those are ones that I can say. Um, so I have here, let's see. Well, I can't find my list, which I so carefully wrote out. But so soy milk as as something that is actually proven to help uh, with a single dose. So if you had a scan right then, some of the radioprotectants, uh, Reservatol, I believe is one of them. Um, Ginkgo bilosa has some very potent antioxidant. Ginger, uh, both the ginger and um, and garlic, both of those have uh, a lot of high sulfur that allows that glutathione um, antioxidant chain that's intrinsic to our bodies to just beefs it up. So this is something as far as protecting yourself, being hydrated. A lot of times they'll say, don't drink anything before. Well, you got to keep yourself from being too dehydrated. So that just makes common sense. If you're going for a procedure where you may need general anesthesia, you got to follow the anesthesia's uh, result. They want an empty stomach so that you don't get sick on them. But any other study where they're saying don't eat anything before, uh, don't eat or drink anything before your exam, uh, a little bit of water in there is not going to harm anything, and it's going to keep you from being too dehydrated when it comes to radiation. So that's another thing. You don't want to be dehydrated. Mm -hmm. Each of these, each individual test gland like the barium enema, it requires, there's certain preps that you can do. And all of these things are online as far as how to prep your colon. Um, each test is individual. Some of the ultrasounds, we want to have the colon cleaned out too so that we can see down there. But uh, so those general, you know, prepare your body so that we can see the image better. Those ones are just standard. As far as behind the scenes, things that we don't necessarily know about yet, we're still learning the beneficial effects. This nutritional supplements that mm -hmm. you could that are very available now, it's okay to load up. I, I do have a very interesting reference from uh, Robert Klein that uh, it's through Life Extension Magazine, and this is a uh, this is an article that was uh, August two thousand ten. Right here, this one, it's a very, very useful uh, and interesting um, article that is, for me, has been a, uh, been an eye opener mm -hmm. to be able to see that I can offer these, I can offer folks something. Okay, you gotta have to have, you're gonna have to have your scan, but what? Rather than sit there and worry about it, what more can I do about it? Well, I think this is this is an answer. At least this is a start, mm -hmm. Glenn. I, you asked something before earlier already that I didn't get a chance to talk about was uh, our airports and the concern that we have in regards to flying and all the security. Well, mm -hmm. uh, again, to put things into perspective, those body scanners, those new body scanners that we have, the whole body that's that just, oh my gosh, you're going to see all my parts. Well, it's really, it, it's very crude radiation. It's called backscatter technology. And so how much radiation do you get from that? Well, once you get to flying altitude and you're in your seat and you're cruising along, in about three seconds, you've gotten about as much radiation dose as you would have by sitting at that by going through that body scanner. Three seconds worth of three seconds worth of flying in the sky. So it's oh. a minuscule dose. It's 0. 0.0000 millisieverts. It's very, 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 very low. 
So no worries. You're more likely to get a, an accidental exposure from the machines that are radiating your bags. If you've got your stick in your hand in there, oh, I didn't turn my bag upside down. You put your hand in there to turn it upside down. Mm. That would be the way to get exposed there. Now, when you're flying, the amount of radiation that you're getting, is it, it's been reported hugely variable. So I believe uh, the uh, FAA's numbers, uh, they're the ones that seem to have the best clue of it. And it's variable depending on where you are in the sky. Every 6,000 feet you go, your dose doubles, wow. your, your cosmic radiation dose. 6,000 so, feet in distance or in altitude? Altitude. Okay. Alt altitude is key. Okay. So, so we're usually flying around 32,000, 35,000. Right. And Concorde flies at 50. So mm. the dose on the Concorde is going to be much higher. Mm. So when you're on the Concorde, their estimation is that you may be receiving anywhere between one millisievert per hour. Wow. That's pretty high dose. So in a three-hour flight from New York to France, you get three millisieverts exposure, one year's background radiation. Now say a transcontinental flight, California to New York, that's a five-hour flight. You're going at 30,000 feet. It's, it's, a, it's a lower dose. You're, and some of the numbers they predict uh, are somewhere in the order of, say, a millisievert for that whole trip, and that's probably close. Do you think it would be cost-effective to have radiologists at security so maybe they could pick up you know, a, a lung disease or something as the person goes through the scanner? <laughs> if, the do if we could get our CT scanners to work on such low dose, which I hope in the next 10 to 20 years we do, then that would work out terrifically. But right now the doses are so crude, so low, that we can't see that kind we can't make that kind of diagnosis. We can only see metal objects, <laughs> things hidden in shoes. Um, so... Monopoly toys. <laughs> Monopoly <laughs> toys. <laughs> Monopoly parts. Dan, uh, we're, we're coming to the end of our show, and we usually yeah. ask our guest to offer a health tip. That is something that through their expertise and journey, uh, they've come up with that they can share with the rest of our global community and viewing audience. Do you have anything for us? Oh, well, I think that mine is probably just uh, is is job specific for what I do, and I think I already kind of give you a clue. For me, sun therapy. I got to get outside. I have to enjoy outside. Too much inside for me does not help me out very much. So, if I can be outside after a long day, inside to spend just five minutes outside, that's therapy for me. Hmm. And that's a pretty simple recipe. And sure, there's, it doesn't help you for the, the uh, cosmic exposures, uh, but it sure is good for the brain. Mm. And if a brain's feeling good, I think the rest of the body does better. Yeah. I like uh, that. It's not a very specific therapy. I, you're probably thinking it was going to be a concoction of... No, you know, we leave it open to each person, <laughs> and each person has come up with something very unique for them. And, uh, you know, the... The process is uh, just figuring it out from that point of view. And, uh, you know, I like the sun therapy also. For me, sometimes just to, if I'm not feeling too great, just to go and lie in the sun for a few minutes, it's almost a comfort food that uh, I just feel the warmth coming over my body. So I, I agree with you on that. That's great. 
I don't know about the dermatologists. When we interview one of them, they may have a whole different category. They say, no, I like to hang out in a CAT scanner and get away from the sun. (laughs) It's the vitamin D, isn't it, that we also supposedly absorb. So, no, I love the sun. I think think, it doesn't matter what weather we have, whether it be rain or shine, I think we, we do need at least that five to 15 minutes out there just breathing the air instead of the air inside our homes and uh, our buildings. I agree. Yeah, but I, I don't think I could do what you do, spending so much time in a dark room. It's yeah. Looking That's at the... shadows. Yes. I know. It's, a, they're, it's fascinating. But thank God they're there because mm-hmm. they've helped so many people uh, like uh, like Dan alluded to before. At one point before we had all this, the only way we could do something is to open somebody up and look inside. Yeah. Now that's saved so many people from unnecessary surgeries or made the surgery more specific, which mm-hmm. was great. Mm-hmm. Dan, is there anything that we left out that you want to talk about uh, in our final minute or two? There is so much I'd love to be able to talk about, but I just couldn't get it all organized in my head and get it out to you in a nice, easy, laid out format. And there's a lot of jargon talk that makes it hard to understand and follow. I understand it's just the nature of what it is. It's hard to uh, it's hard to put everything in layman's term when you're talking technical here. So I'm sure there was a lot missed. I hope there was nothing misconstrued. Uh, bottom line for me is that, of course, what what I'm doing, I want it to be valuable, and I do feel as though it is. Um, we've taken this new role of radiation safety officer very seriously and trying to find new avenues. For me, learning about the nutrition uh, supplements that may potentially help folks is just, that's this open up new avenues for me. So sometimes a state mandate does more than just put a number and allow uh, a document, allow a document to become more medical legal. It actually, uh, stir some emotion and some interest. And um, so I think that it was a good thing that they've done a lot more work for us and maybe a little bit more confusing. And it does set off some alarms uh, for folks that may not have as good a feel for it as say we do now. Um, But hopefully everybody has a little better understanding now about radiation and can put it all into context Mm -hmm. um, that media can, can actually negatively influence what we're doing and make us maybe not do a test that we would have otherwise benefited from. So you got to trust in your medical professionals that they're doing what they can trust in the physicists and the manufacturers that they're continuing to push the envelope so that we can really get low dose studies and do the best you can to stay out of the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we like to have our guests uh, not feel like they've told us everything. That way we get to invite them back for more shows and, and spread their knowledge. Absolutely. This time, I would like to say how grateful we are to our special guest, Dr. Daniel Fox, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. I would like mm-hmm. to always thank my teachers and my healers for getting me through my journey. And I'm looking forward to sharing Uh, another week with Christina as we explore the healthcare galaxy. Uh, Next week, we will be talking with Dr. David Cumes, a very interesting person who is a urologist and also uh, a sangoma, and I'll leave it at that for this moment. 
so that you can tune in. So until our next meeting, I say thank you, Dan, and I wish all of our viewers optimal health. Thank you so much, Glenn, and thank you so much for honoring us, Dan. It was, I mean, it's amazing. Every show we learn so much more about what happens behind the scenes um, and uh, that to support our health. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you on Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. Pacific time for Magical Medical Tour. And, of course, on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. for Trinity of Life. Um, so we look forward to seeing you again. And just want to remind everyone that you can find Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman and on Twitter at Glenn Woolman. So, and if you go to his site, may I highly recommend to you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Uh, it is something that is very simple, easily done, and helps you kind of get through your day or days or weeks or whenever you're tense or whenever you're nervous. We use that a lot over here. <laughs> so may I recommend you uh, check that out on his site. Again, we look forward to seeing you tomorrow on um, Trinity of Life. And Glenn, thank you so much again for another wonderful show. Many blessings, Christina. Bless Bye, Dan. Bye-bye. Namaste. Thanks for having me.